I'm Steve Pruitt. I get the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning, and I do count it as a, a huge privilege and responsibility all at the same time. <clears throat> um, as we go through our passage this morning, I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles if you've brought them, and if you haven't, there are Bibles in the little rack in front of the, like below the seat in front of you. Or if you want to follow along with your Uversion app, you just click on the app, click on more and events, and the scriptures that we're going through will be there, and you can track there. Also, there are notes, and if you didn't pick some up, you may want to do that. I don't mind if you just get up and come up and get them, or go to the back and get them. Um, might help you if you want to take some notes along the way. Today, we're launching a series of messages on the songs of Christmas, and we're starting with a song that actually came before Christ was born. These are scriptural songs, not joy to the world and all of that, but it's kind of where that stuff came from, right? So... Um, The one that we're looking at today happened before Christ was born, and it was written by a guy named Zechariah. And let's start by standing together and reading Luke chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 68, which is verse 1 of the song, and it's actually eight long verses in your Bible. So, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the chance we have to open this wonderful book We are privileged to have it in our language and in our hands, and I pray that as we open your word this morning, you will open our eyes and our hearts to see and hear what you'd have us learn today. We know that you're our teacher, and that apart from your help, we pretty much remain in the dark. So come, Lord, show us ourselves, show us our Savior, and teach us to trust you more fully as we get into your word this morning. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when an artist introduces a song to a live audience, they often start with an intro that tells a little bit about where they were when they wrote the song or what was happening, what inspired them as they wrote it, just to kind of give you some context for understanding what the song at least meant to them and maybe help you get a little bit more meaning out of it yourself. If it's a love song, they might tell you about some kind of romantic encounter that they had, somebody that they're thinking of in particular or whatever. If it's a country song, they're probably just going to tell you that their dog died or their girlfriend left or they're out of beer (laughs) or something like that. If it's a blues song, which is, of course, my favorite, 
you never know what you're going to get for an intro because there's not a whole lot to introduce. There's not a lot of songs, a lot of lyrics in blues songs anyway. But years ago, there was a group named Canned Heat, and in a live performance, they introduced a song called Bullfrog Blues. Now, you, if you haven't heard it, you can kind of imagine how creative you have to get to make a song out of a bullfrog. But the lead singer in introducing the song, Bob Height, says, I'm sure some of you at one time or another has probably woke up with bullfrogs on your mind. (laughs) If you haven't, you've got a hole in your soul. I'm going, really? (laughs) I'm supposed to listen to this? I'm not making that up. That really happened. (laughs) The song that we're going to look at today is by a guy named Zechariah. And in order to really get his message, we're going to need a little bit of background on what or who prompted the song that has actually been preserved for over 2,000 years right now, about 2,000 years. First, I want to do to get the background is take a look at Zechariah's world. He lives at a time when Israel is pretty worn down. They have endured centuries of captivity by various nations coming in, taking them over, taking their wives and daughters as slaves and all kinds of awful stuff. And at the time of this song, they have been uh, under the rule of the Roman government. And they are sick and tired of being dominated by everybody else around them. And they've waited for centuries for the promised deliverer, the redeemer to come and make things right for them, restore them to their former glory. Many in Israel were wondering if it was ever going to happen. Their fathers hadn't seen it. Their grandfathers hadn't seen it. They hadn't even heard anything from the Lord for 400 years. The prophets were silent. They're still looking forward to the day when the Messiah deliverer comes and set things right. But because of all those centuries of oppression and silence and all of that, their first desire now was that the deliverer would come not so much to free them from the penalty of their sin and and, uh, gain them an entrance to heaven, but they're looking for a deliverer that would deliver them from the Romans and establish Israel again as the, the power that they once were. They're looking back to the glories of Solomon's temple that we've been talking about through the book of Ecclesiastes a bit, and they're thinking that God is going to restore that. So many have just been kind of beaten down in their hope, and many have given up hope. Next, I want to look at Zechariah's job. I know it's a quick shift, but he was a guy who was in the priestly line. So he had duties in the temple from time to time. One of his duties was to go into the temple's holy place. If you picture the temple or the tabernacle going in near the presence of God and to offer incense and prayers upon the altar of incense. Since there were so many priests at this particular time, they had to take turns and it was likely that your number would only come up once in your whole lifetime. 
Zechariah was in that lottery, and for the first time in his life, probably, his number came up. He knew it might be his only time to ever go in before God and offer incense and prayers in the temple, his one shot. So he heads into the holy place with some incense in his hand and some things on his mind, and he prays and offers the incense to the Lord his God, as he was supposed to do. He's probably praying for the deliverance of Israel, but it looks like he also slips in a prayer for his wife to have a baby. Elizabeth was barren, had never been able to have kids, and now they were both getting pretty old, kind of past that time when you could have much hope of that. So the chances of her getting pregnant were very slim. But Zechariah figures, well, I'm probably never going to get any closer to the presence of God. I'm already offering up some prayers anyway, and he's listening, so I'm going to ask for a child. Why not? So he prays. But then something totally unexpected happens he has an encounter in that room with an angel of God. Look at verses 11 to 17. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Usually people did a face plant when they saw an angel. He was gripped with fear. He was probably frozen. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're going to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's very easy to miss the significance of this encounter, especially if you have been told the Christmas stories your whole life. The angel is bringing answers to Zechariah's prayers. One, that Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a son, which is an amazing miracle in itself. But two, that this son is going to be the forerunner going before the Lord. Now, a forerunner is the person in ancient times who, when the king was coming into the town, the forerunner would go before the king, and he's the one that would go, make way, make way, get out of the way, the king is coming, and everybody would bow down and get ready for the king. They probably dressed up the whole main street and all of that stuff. It was a preparation time, and the forerunner was the one that got everybody ready. Bow down, the king is coming. The Old Testament prophet Malachi 
foretold the coming of one unique forerunner who would come just before the Redeemer was supposed to come. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So according to Malachi, the messenger prepares the way for the Lord's coming, and he also announces the Lord. That's what we get here. Isaiah chapter 40, written about 700 years before uh, Zechariah's time, says another thing about the forerunner. In verse 3 of Isaiah 40, the forerunner is called a voice of one calling in the desert. You've heard that term, voice of one calling in the wilderness or the desert, telling people to get ready for the coming of the Redeemer. But then once the Redeemer shows up, there are further instructions to the forerunner down in Isaiah verse 9, in Isaiah 40, verse 9. It says, You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up to a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. So this forerunner is not only preparing the people for the coming of the Redeemer, he's also pointing them out when he shows up. Prepare, and then here is your God. Here he is. And you can see, as you look at the angel's announcement to Zechariah, that some of those elements, those same prophetic elements are included. The angel says, he, your son, John, will go on before the Lord. He will prepare people for his coming, and he will bring many back to the Lord. In other words, there's going to be some kind of introduction again there. He's going to point him out when he comes. So here, God is saying that he's about to do several things. He's answering Zechariah's priestly prayer for deliverance for Israel. He's answering Zechariah's personal prayer for a child And he's giving him a son. And that's not just any son. This son is going to play a major role in God's prophetic plan. A son who is actually going to present the long-awaited Messiah to Israel. Can you imagine what a privilege that would be? So Zechariah is not just getting an answer to prayer. uh, And he's, he's not just getting a twofer on his prayer. He's getting like a threefer. Deliverance for Israel son for his family, and a chance to raise up a key person in God's eternal prophetic plan. What a great day for Zechariah and for Israel. And by the way, for you and me as well, because we're about to see in the story the plan for our salvation begin to play out 2,000 years ago, and I'm so glad it was written down. Not only that, it's also good to know on a personal personal level from this, that God actually listens to our prayers. He fulfills his promises and he always does what he says he's going to do. It may not always be on our time schedule, but he always does what he says he's going to do. Now, you would think Zechariah would be jumping up and down, seeing this just as clearly as we see it 
now, but for some reason, he doesn't get it. Foresight is always dimmer than hindsight. Listen to what he says in verse uh, 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. He doesn't believe God's messenger. He wants it proven. How can I be sure this is really going to happen? Bad idea, Zechariah. Look at the results of his response in verses 19 and 20. The angel then answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. The angel says, in effect, excuse me? What just came out of your mouth? Do you know who I am and where I live in the presence of the Almighty God? And he sent me here to tell you this, and you're going to say, prove it? Okay, Zach. You're going to have a major timeout. In fact, you're not going to be able to speak for nine months until after the baby is born and named. When all these things are fulfilled, okay. But your time out is going to be nine months easy. And it looks like Zechariah can't even whisper because he has to write stuff down. You know, you could whisper if you could do it. But he is literally tongue-tied and can't even speak. It looks like he can't even hear and nod because they have to write stuff to him. So it's like his whole, here he's communicating to God and God is communicating to him. He doesn't believe God and so God shuts down the Wi-Fi and he's completely on his own, completely cut off. Got to go back to analog, you know. And this discipline happens, it's obvious in the story, because he's praying and he's not believing God when God so obviously answered his prayer. I'm not talking about, you know, that I pray for something and then I just try to faith it into existence or anything like that. I'm just saying when God actually answers a prayer that you don't see it or believe it or that you say, God, can you just prove it one more time to me? It was like when he was praying, he was mouthing words to God, but didn't really expect God to hear him or especially answer him. And when God did hear and answer, he wanted proof that God was really going to do it. And aren't you glad that we are never like that? (laughs) That we finally, we have this down. Verses 23 to 25 finish this part of the story. It says, when his time of service was completed, that's, you know, when he's done doing the incense thing, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. 
The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Zechariah is an early example of what turned out to be so common in Israel during the time just before Jesus came. Most had been looking forward to the Messiah's coming, but so many, once it happened, just did not believe that God had actually answered the cry of their heart. And I hope that we're really not like that. I hope that we can learn from Zechariah that we need to take God at his word and just believe it as truth. Not always understanding it, sure, but just knowing if he speaks, probably a good idea to listen and take it as truth. Another thing to take from this is to realize that even when you just think that you're going through the ritual of praying to God and maybe you just feel like you're praying to the window or the ceiling or whatever, God's really listening. It might make you be a little bit careful what you pray for too, but um, he is listening. And he might not always give us the answer that we expect. It might not always even be easy to recognize his answers because we have in our minds automatically what we think he ought to do. But know this, he does always hear and answer prayers. During this nine months, a lot of things happen. The angel visits Mary during this time and announces that the Savior's coming through her. Joseph goes through his dilemma about what to do about his girlfriend's pregnancy. Mary visits Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant, and when she does, the baby, John, who is six months in Elizabeth's womb, as Mary approaches with Jesus in her womb, the Savior, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy, and Elizabeth cries out knowing that that baby in her womb is now announcing He's the forerunner, and he's saying, here he is. Something to get excited about. All of this happens during this nine months. Um, And so people are getting more and more convinced that this really is going to be the time when the long-awaited Messiah comes. Let's skip down to verse 57 in Luke 1, where we see Zechariah's do-over. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, verse 57 starts, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives by that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. So here, Zechariah names him John, just like the Lord had instructed. That is the first part of his do-over And he gets it right. By the way, the name John means God is gracious. And he's about to grace the world through this forerunner announcing the coming Messiah. 
But then look what happens in verse 64. Immediately, as soon as he names him John, right then, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. This time in the do-over, he's not doubting God, but praising God for what he so obviously is doing. Verse 65, the neighbors were all filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. So this time, after nine months of complete silence, Zechariah gets a do-over, a second chance to respond to what God's doing. And the moment the baby's giving, given the name that God had chosen, Zechariah is able to speak. This miracle of speech at this time is a sign to Zechariah 1 that God isn't finished with him yet. His time out was not forever, like one chance and you're done kind of thing. But it's also a sign to everyone else, including us, that something very significant is happening at this very event in the birth of this child. God is fulfilling his promise that he's been pointing to ever since the beginning of time when he promised that he was going to send someone to defeat Satan and conquer sin. And John's birth is just the first phase of this because John is destined to announce the coming of the Redeemer. So it turns out that the end of Zechariah's time out is a very strong punctuation of the perfect timing of our God. It wasn't actually about Zechariah anyway. So as Zechariah realizes that he can speak, he is filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit and he breaks into a prophetic song in verse 68. This song actually came to be known as the Benedictus. It became a hymn in the first few centuries after like in about the third century, I think it was. And Benedictus just means Praise, and it's actually the first word of the song. You can uh, break this song into two verses one that speaks to Israel about what God has done, and the other that speaks to his son, John, about what John is going to do. So if you, br- if you break it down that way, you kind of understand the flow of the song a little bit better. Let's just read the first verse for now, which is actually eight verses in your Bible. It tells of what God has done. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Just to unpack this first verse of the song a little bit. There are several things that the Lord says through Zechariah that he's done here. First, that God has come 
and redeemed his people. Even though it hasn't been completed in real time yet, it's a done deal. That's the way prophecy often speaks. It speaks as if it's something that has already happened because in God's mind, he sees the present and the future all as one. He's not limited by our time calendar warp, whatever you call that, the time-space continuum or whatever. Secondly, in the song, it says that he's raised up a horn of salvation, which is a metaphorical way of saying raised up a powerful savior who is capable, just as the bull's horns were its power against its enemies and to accomplish what it needed to do. This horn of salvation was showing that God is strong to deliver one who will save us from our enemies, show us the mercy that he's promised way back to our father, from our father Abraham. Um, Thirdly, the song says that the Messiah, this deliverer is going to enable us to serve God in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. In other words, this one who is coming is going to work out our position before God to where he considers us holy and righteous. Not that we're going to be practically perfect, but we are going to have that status. We will be declared righteous in his sight through the work of this one who is about to come. What an amazing thing. So putting all of that together, This verse of the song is saying that God is finally fulfilling his promise to send the one that we've been hoping for for all these years. Then there's the second verse of the song where Zechariah actually turns to his newborn son and addresses him in another very long verse. In fact, in some of your Bibles, it will all be one sentence from verse 76 all the way to verse 79. And here he talks about what John will do. He talks to John about what John is going to do. Verse 76, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I'm so glad there are commas in that sentence. There's a lot of prophecy alluded to right here, and it is so obvious that God is going to use this boy, John, to graciously prepare for the coming of the deliverer by showing them their sin and convincing them of their need of the Savior. And as you see John the Baptist's life play out and you read his preaching, wow. He nailed people to the wall, and it, was, it seemed very harsh at the time to people, but it was a gracious mercy of God to get them to the place where they're prepared to trust the Redeemer by stopping their trust in themselves. And that was, if you read John's messages, that's exactly what he was doing. He was trying to bring them to repentance, to that aha moment where they saw, I am toast because I am sinful and that put them in 
the right frame of mind to be able to trust somebody else to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. That was what John was going to be. And then once he prepared people and God was ready to actually reveal the Savior, John is going to be the one who stands at the river, sees Jesus coming and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John who got to do that. Wow. So Zechariah, in his do-over, he gets it right. And God continues to use him in the days ahead to raise up a son whom Jesus once called the greatest man born of woman who ever lived. What a privilege he still had to raise this boy up to be somebody like that. So that's where we're going to leave it today. But before we go, I'd like to talk about some practical things that we might be able to learn from Zechariah's time out. It's always easier to learn from the mistakes of other people. It's a whole lot less stressful. And uh, we can avoid many of God's little timeouts by just taking him at his word rather than making him prove things to us. He loves it when we just trust him and count on him to do what he says he's going to do. So I'm not going to say that the band is going to come up quite yet. Ha, I just did. Aaron went like that. When you do feel like you've been set aside, when you feel like maybe you've been placed on hold, like Zechariah, whatever thing might be happening that you're hoping that God would do in your life, or maybe it's a physical thing that's happening and you feel like God has given you a time out. There are some things that are healthy for you to remember. First of all, when God gives you a time out, it's always a good time to think about why. To just honestly look at it. Don't blow it off. You might miss something really important. You might not be able to figure it out, but it's good to take stock of what he might be trying to teach you through your time out. Maybe you did mess up and he's trying to teach you to trust him in some way. It's always good to sort of cover the bases and just kind of take stock and say, Lord, show me, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? That's okay to do that. Secondly, when God gives you a time out, it's good to know that it's not always about you. It's not always because you messed up. He just might be doing something bigger than you. Or he might be allowing something that's happening in your life to be on display for someone else who is watching you go through a difficult thing. Might not even be because of you, but because of somebody else that he's put into your life. He may be putting you on display to show what faith looks like, what perseverance looks like, what, how people who trust him handle disappointments, things like that. It might not be about you at all. And he may want to just be drawing their attention to his sufficiency in your life so that they can consider that he just might be sufficient and worthy of trust in their lives as well. Thirdly, and I think the best news is when God gives you a timeout, it's never forever. 
If you're his child through trust in his son, Jesus, as your savior, you can know that any sickness or setback is not going to be forever. In his timing, he will bring it to an end. He is going to take away eventually every sickness. He is going to wipe away every tear and allow us into his eternal, joyful presence. I have no prophetic guarantee that your time out is going to end even in your lifetime, but I know that it will end as God brings all of his promises to bear on your life and he welcomes you completely restored into his presence. It's never forever. That's something to look forward to even during a time out. The key for now is to consider maybe the possible reasons and uh, learn the lessons that you can to uh, also to accept your situation as being at least allowed by him and to consider that it might be a part of a bigger plan that he's using you in somebody else's life and I think above all just to trust him to resolve it in his time and in his way knowing that he will. He's promised never to leave you nor forsake you. If you are his child, that's his promise. And he's proven that not only from his promises, but also by his actions down through history. And he's also proven it to you when he purchased your eternal salvation while you were still messed up. And that's always something good to remember and to celebrate no matter what kind of setback or timeout you might be experiencing. That he has paid for your pardon. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. And I want to talk a little bit about communion. Every week we give an opportunity for you to celebrate communion. And in that celebration, what we're doing is we're celebrating what God has already done for us. Thank you. The bread that we break reminds us that his body was broken for us. He was the Lamb of God slain for our sins. And the juice or wine that we drink reminds us of the cost of our redemption. We were not purchased by things like silver or gold that we consider to be precious, but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot, as Peter says. He came to be the lamb of God who takes away our sin. He came to die in your place and mine. And as we do that communion, little ritual that we do, we're reminded that our eternity has been taken care of. No matter what we're going through, our eternity has been taken care of. As we celebrate it, we're reminded that we've been redeemed. We've already been purchased. And that is a great, great thing. Now, um, just before the band begins to play, I'm going to pray, but I want you to know that... uh, There will be some leaders at the back. If you are maybe going through something and you just want somebody to 
to pray with you or add a perspective to your confusion or something like that, to be delighted to pray with you. There's also offering baskets at the doors uh, at the church here. An offering isn't passed, a plate isn't passed. They just trust that the Lord is going to prompt his people to give generously as they can. So um, thank you all for sharing the morning with us, for your patience, and uh, I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer. Father, we're so glad that you are the God who fulfills his promises. We're glad that you have never abandoned us, even when we don't get right stuff the first time. Help us, Lord, to learn to trust your word and to respond right that first time. Help us to see the big picture of what you're doing in us and through us as you walk with us through our lives. Open our eyes so we don't miss the lessons that you want to teach us. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior's sufficiency all along the way. In his name we pray. Amen.